Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and resulting in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. Good morning. Redeemer Church, if you're new or visiting with us, I'm Matt. I know most of you. I'm one of the elders here. Every year, about this time, October, just a couple weeks it happened, a couple weeks ago, my Facebook said, you have new memories from today. So I always click and look at them, usually to delete something that was embarrassing from a long time ago. But in this case, from 2018, this picture always comes up, and I love to see it every year. And every year it changes, too. Craig, wave your hand right there. See what that man is right there? That row that he's sitting in was the last row in this church when Abby and I first started coming. And it wasn't full. These, those rows in front of it were not full. It was scattered with just a few people here and there. And every year, it seems like we have to add another row and another row and another row and another row. And so this morning for our time in corporate prayer, we're going to reflect on what the Lord has done in our church here. But more specifically, it has been two years since we started the Next Five initiative here at Redeemer Church. Most of you already know exactly what that is, how it came to be, and how it got started. But there are also some of you who weren't here for that. And so you've come into Redeemer Church. The Lord has brought you here. I see you serving here. You are our family now. But we want to make sure that you know what we're doing. Because it's really easy when you hear something like campaign or initiative or Next Five we're just raising money for a building, right? We just want to have a place of our own with paint on the wall that's the color we like, that aren't little kids running around in all week. That's not what it's about. And so we're going to take a minute here. We're going to watch about a five-minute video that Shannon recorded over two years ago to lead us into this season of what we're calling the next five, what, what the Lord has for us in these next five years back then to remind us, those of us who were here, of what we're doing, why we're doing this, what is our vision? What is our purpose? What is the Lord calling us to that led us to start this, to try to achieve these goals? But also, for those of you who are new, so that you can hear what we're doing. And let's, let's watch this video together now, and then I'll come back up. We'll talk about a few more things, and then we're going to pray. We're going to pray together for the next five, but more importantly, we're going to pray for our church, for Redeemer Church, and to pray that our vision would be renewed and that we would have a focus on the gospel and seeing it go out into our community. So let's go ahead and watch this video. As we celebrated the last five years of God's faithfulness to us as a church in 2020, we begin to turn our attention to the next five years of ministry here in faith. As we move into the future, our elders have identified several priorities that we believe need our focused attention as a church. And the first of those priorities is a continued commitment to reaching our neighbors. At Redeemer, we want to be a part of creating kingdom culture in Rockwall County. In real life, that kind of kingdom culture looks like prodigals returning home, marriages being restored, and the needy around us receiving care. It looks like community members of every color and every class feeling welcomed in our churches and new churches being launched in our county and beyond. But creating kingdom culture starts with people being reconciled to God 
through faith in his appointed and anointed king, namely Jesus Christ. We want to continue to reach our neighbors by sharing the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that new life is available for any and all who would trust in Him and place their confidence in Jesus. The next five will provide a place for that gospel message to be declared Sunday after Sunday. And the gospel to be demonstrated Monday through Saturday through ongoing outreach in our community. Now the second priority we want to focus our attention on is raising disciples. Now a disciple is someone that is learning to reorder their lives and loves as followers of Jesus. Jesus Himself says that discipleship involves a kind of death, a dying to self, dying to the godless agendas that have filled our lives, dying to the cultural story that says that the highest aim of your life is personal fulfillment. And as we learn to find life through death, we discover that the loneliness we once experienced is replaced by the experience of being knit together with others who are reordering their lives and loves around Jesus as well. We mature from being selfish to selfless, from greedy to generous, from malicious to merciful, and on and on and on. To continue seeing disciples raised at Redeemer will require an investment in human resources. Gifted people who are willing to invest their lives in others as disciple makers. And some of those will need to be staff members of our church. So as we grow, we need to better compensate our current staff members to account for increases in cost of living, changes in family dynamics, while at the same time adding additional staff to make the workload more manageable. And the next five will provide additional staff funding at Redeemer to help us better serve and care for those who commit their vocational energy to serving and caring for us. Now, a third priority is launching leaders. At Redeemer, we envision being a teaching church, just like a teaching hospital takes in nursing students for clinical rotations and medical students for residencies. A teaching church takes in young men and young women called to ministry for internships and residencies and helps launch them into new ministry opportunities. As we move into the next five, we're aiming to launch an intern and residency program to invest in future pastors, church planters, and ministry leaders. And we hope to welcome the first summer interns here at Redeemer in the summer of 2022 and the first resident in early 2023. And a part of the funding from the next five will be given to assisting our mission partners to level up our support of their initiatives and our involvement with them, but another portion of that will be earmarked and set aside as well for church planting and revitalization. The fourth priority for us as a church over the next five years is to find and fund a permanent home. And a key step in this endeavor is to secure the funding we need to purchase property in our community. You know, locking in a location as real estate prices around us escalate is vitally important because if history is any indication, the price of land in our community will only continue to rise as we move further into the future. As a result, what we could buy with a dollar today may cost a dollar twenty-five or a dollar thirty-five in a few years. So better to buy now than later. 
Now, our vision to be a church planting church defines our land and facility needs. So we aren't looking for 30 acres to build a super center. Instead, we're looking for four to seven acres to build a modern but modest and functional facility. A facility where we can gather for worship every weekend that would also serve as an outpost for ministry in our community throughout the week. And this kind of permanent home will give us a place to conduct ongoing outreach in our community. A place to instruct and equip and a place to bring in, invest in, and send out future leaders. So some of you are also wondering who that guy is on the screen. That's Pastor Shannon, the lead pastor here at at Redeemer. So what's happened since then and what has happened now? Because you just heard some things that didn't happen the way that we thought they were going to happen. Where are the interns? Where are the residents that were supposed to be here this year and last They're not here. So some things have not happened the way that we thought they would, but at the same time, they have. The Lord has answered prayer on so many levels and revealed to us himself more and more, little by little. You heard Shannon mention wanting to become a teaching church. That was kind of the goal behind getting those residents in here. The sabbatical wasn't the plan two years ago. Shannon is out right now on a fatigue-related extended sabbatical that we didn't see coming But he raised up a team of teachers, of preachers from within, who you have heard preach week after week after week now, faithfully. We are a teaching church now. Not exactly how we saw it happening, but it has become. Also, we've seen attacks from the enemy in many ways, the sabbatical being one of them. We didn't see that coming. And now Shannon is out, and he'll be back January 1st, and so... What the enemy meant for our destruction, for our evil, and for our failure in the next five initiative, he has turned for our good. We have more competent leaders now faithfully serving more regularly, teaching you and leading you. Also, if you turn to page 16 in this book, you'll see some numbers there. Some numbers that aren't the case. I saw a video earlier this week I was telling Abby about. uh, A guy found a receipt from 2018, a grocery store, you know, just a shopping trip, and it was $80 and something cents. He thought, I'm going to go and I'm going to buy those exact same things today and see how much it actually costs today. Because we hear 11% inflation, 14% inflation. We all know things cost a little bit more now. But he went and took that $80 receipt and bought line for line, item for item, the exact same things. And it was over $190 at his grocery store just five years later. And so when you look at page 16, there's a projection down there for a total cost of $3.5 million dollars. Because inflation, because things have gone up, we're looking at more than $4.5 million now to accomplish that specific goal. And so we're trusting now that just like the Lord has brought us to the place of being a teaching team as we wanted to be in 22-23, that he will continue to provide in ways that we don't yet see and that we will trust in him. So we ask for you to pray for us in that. Now because we're at a two-year point here, We wanted to bring this to the front of your mind to celebrate what the Lord has done, but also to recommit to what we're still trying to accomplish. And so for some of you in here, if you want to commit going forward and you haven't yet, please do so. In those books are also some cards where you can put your name down, put a number down. Whatever that number is for you, we don't care. That's between you and the Lord. We just ask that you join with us, partner with us, give on a regular basis, give a one-time gift, or some of you want to increase your commitment. Maybe the Lord has given you a raise at work or a bonus or something, or you've come into more money 
and inflation isn't hitting you like it is other people, maybe you can give more. Consider doing that. Or if you want to maintain your current commitment, fill out a card and drop it in and put recommitting. This is just a reaffirmation of what I'm already doing. Or if you want to give a one-time gift just to celebrate this two-year anniversary of the next five with us, please do so. There's a little treasure chest in the box back or box back there that you can drop those cards in. You could drop a check in, you could drop some cash in, whatever you feel like. There's also a QR code that you can give online. Next steps, a master plan. Our next five team, a team of volunteers, a lot of you sitting in this room, led by Craig, are going to start looking seriously at putting a master plan. Oh, I should say, we bought land. Hey, praise God, we bought land in the last two years. Hey. I almost left that out. Another answer to prayer. If you don't know the story about the land, uh, we found a piece of land. We loved it. It was expensive. We ended up asking if they would sell it to us at, at a lower price and then donate a few acres as a con uh, charitable gift. And they said yes. Praise God. He provided that for us. And so just down the road, if you keep driving on 66 uh, towards Roy City on the right side of the road, you, you'll see a sign that says Future Home of Redeemer Church. Those are the four to seven acres that Shana talked about that we want to build on. But it is so much more expensive now to build that we just are trusting the Lord to get us to that next step. And that next step is the next five team meeting with golf companies, our, our contractor and our consultants to put together a master plan, seeing what utilities need to be brought onto the property, how much that's going to cost, maybe putting an office building on the building to, on the property to start, a place for our staff to meet and work and labor and then grow from there. It's going to have to be bite-sized, one step at a time. Unless somebody here has a couple million. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to rule anything out. <laughs> anyway, and then on top of that action item, something that you could do to help is in the spring, we're going to organize a cleanup day where we just go out to the land and we clean it up. There's all kinds of shrubbery, trees, and trash that people have dumped out there because it's easy, easy access to 66. Uh, you know, the new master loop that's coming through, that's another answer to prayer. There's a new master loop, if you didn't know, coming through the area. It's a lot like the Georgia Bush Turnpike that's going to cut right through between Roy City and Fate. We found out just a few weeks after we bought the land, and it looked like it was going to maybe cut through our land that we just bought. Well, praise God, the route that they've down-selected now is a half mile away. There'll be an on-ramp from 66, so actually our property value is probably going to be way better than it was when we bought it because of this new access and this new road. Answer to prayer. Anyway, so come out in the spring when you get that date from us and help us clean the land. Let's just be on the land. Let's work it together, pray over it, and pray for the future. So take those cards, consider it, talk with your spouse if you need to. Drop the commitment card in the box in the back this week or next. If you need to talk about it, pray about it, please take your time. But we're inviting you to join us. Come up on the on-ramp to this interstate that we're traveling on towards being a gospel outpost here in Rockwall, Fate, and Roy City as we seek to be a church that plants other churches in this community. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the five rows of chairs that became eight, that became ten, that became conversations about maybe adding a second service if we need to. I thank you for the growth that we've seen. I thank you for sustaining us through COVID as many churches were closing their doors around us. I pray, God, for the next five initiative, and I pray that you would be the focal point of that. Let us not get lost on numbers or success or counting, but help us to focus on you, Jesus, and to see it as a tool to reach our community with the gospel.
I pray, Lord, that we would see lives changed through heart transformation. I pray, Lord, for our pastor as he comes back re-energized in the beginning of the year, that we would all be able to jump in with both feet in a sprint, God, and sustain us in that as we seek to be the church that you're calling us to be here. I pray for Stanley this morning as he comes up to preach as a part of this teaching team that you've so graciously provided us for this time. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from you through your word and through the book of Job. And I pray, Lord, that you be present here as the word is taught. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Kiddos, if you are primary pre-K through first grade, go ahead and stand up. And your teacher's in the back waving her hand. (laughs) Make your way to her now. And if you are going to class second (coughs) through fourth grade, you can go ahead and stand up. And your teacher's waving her hand. You can go ahead and be dismissed and go to class at this time. Thanks, Matt. Just a quick, uh, one more logistical pieces. We've been flashing cards here all morning, but just one more. If you're new here and uh, want to get more information about Redeemer, we have these welcome cards uh, in a seat next to you, or you can scan the QR code in front of the chair, and you can drop it off uh, in the back in the same box, and somebody will um, you know, be in contact. We promise not to show up unannounced, but rather just want to make sure you are connected to what's happening here. Uh, on the back side is also a place for prayer requests. So if there's anything we can pray with you or for you, we'd be more than happy to do that. We, uh, as the elders gather, we uh, share it across with our, our prayer team, but also with the elders as requests come in uh, to make sure that they are prayed for. Uh, so please um, feel free to add any prayer requests that you have that's on your mind, any burdens that we can pray with you and drop it in the card and we'll be more than happy to do that. Uh, before we jump in, um, as I was kind of reflecting on, you know, math, kind of we were preparing for this anniversary uh, giving time and um, kind of celebrating what is it that God's done, you know, um, thankfully for, and I don't, we didn't plan this, but um, Lindsay and I have been attending Redeemer since since we've moved to this location, um, and I want to say I've served as an elder, pretty much, I think eight out of the nine years we've been here for, in different capacities, and I've been on the finance team for some portion of that time. And so one thing I do get to see is all of the back end uh, and the decisions and the prayers that kind of go into it. Some of you are new and probably have not been uh, privy, privy to a lot of it, but if I were to stand here and just recount all the ways that God's been faithful uh, in the life of this church, it's uh, it's just mind-blowing. Um, we've spent, um, you know, we have finance meetings every few, uh, every quarter, and every year it's like, okay, what should the budget be? What, what is this like? This is what we need to be a church here in faith. This is what we need to be, uh, do ministry here. And uh, every year it's like, I don't know that we can pull that off, or I don't know if we can do that. And every year, consistently, we our, our budget has gone up at least 10% or so every year. And every year, God's provided more than what we budgeted for, which we were already, which we already thought was a lot, and God has been so faithful in that. Uh, and as the finance team gathers every uh, every time we meet, it's like it's just a reminder that God's just been faithful financially, but also in the people. Just I think Matt just shared the chairs. Um, I want to say uh, I think 2017 going to 2018, we we're like I think we may have to close the church because I don't think we had transitioned from Sabine Creek to here and 
you know, not a lot of people wanted that. They wanted to be in a country church, and it was not where the elders felt like they needed to be, and so we moved here, and uh, because I think like Shannon puts it, we wanted to be in a place where there were more people per square mile than cows per square mile, and so <laughs> we found ourselves here at Redeemer, uh, here in Highview, which Matt, uh, the owner of this place, uh, graciously built this daycare uh, with the idea of renting it to a church on the weekends, and so as we were moving, this building shows up. He basically built it the year that we were looking to move. Like it was, we were thinking about moving in, this, uh, in the summer. By December, this building was up where we got to pray uh, around this building and uh, kind of see what God was doing here. So as I just want to mention that as we kind of, as you think about um, and reflecting on God's faithfulness here and how God's been working and all the new faces that God's brought here. And um, I, I just can't, I mean, it'll take my whole sermon time, so I'm just going to move on. But uh, I want to just reflect on that and thank God for the work that he's doing here. So I'm grateful for all the ways that I see a lot of faces here that have invested and put in your time and energy and money. And um, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart that I'm grateful as part of the elder team of how each of you have served and contributed to uh, Redeemer here. All right. So that was the upbeat part of the sermon. Uh, we uh, actually are uh, going to be looking at the book of Job this morning. And so uh, we've, um, oh, by the way, for those that don't know, my name is Stanley, I serve as an elder here. I don't know if I introduced myself, uh, but I serve as an elder here. And so this morning we're going to, we've been in this series called uh, Indestructible, where we're looking at this theme of hope through the Bible. And we've been tracing this theme of hope through the Old Testament so far. We will kind of keep going, but we've started in Genesis and we've been tracing this theme through the different books of the Bible. And today we find ourselves in, in, in the book of Job. If you've missed any portion of, this, uh, of the series, you can go back to our website and all of the sermons are up there if you want to catch up. And I would encourage you to do so um, if you have missed any portion of it. And, and so, like I said, we're going to be in the book of Job, so you can go ahead and turn there. Um, we're actually going to do an overview of Job, and Job is about 42 chapters, so I'm not going to be able to read uh, obviously, uh, all, the, all of Job, uh, I'm going to read portions of it. Some of it will be on the screen that I want you guys to follow through, but if you guys can keep your fingers on, on your Bibles uh, and the book of Job, I'll kind of lead you as we look at the different passages that I want to focus on this morning. All right, now, if you're familiar with or been around church and familiar with your Bible, uh, Job and hope are not the kinds of things you would think go together in the same sentence. You would often think, there are like opposite ends of the spectrum, isn't it? Right, hope we've been working, the definition we've been working with is hope is this anticipation of goodness or this expectation that God is going to be good to us. And Job is very much the opposite story. Job has very little hope if you were to just read it on the surface level. But this morning I just want to uh, kind of, as I uh, share what I feel like God's put on my heart, uh, I hope to show you that even in a book like Job where we learn about a righteous man who suffers unimaginable tragedy, uh, experiences deep pain, experiences severe loss. Um, even in that story, we can see the we can see and learn about hope. And I think uh, because I believe Job can teach us how we as people can learn to be hopeful even in the middle of suffering, like like Job experiences. And so part of the challenge, though, as we look at the book of Job, and if you know even the a quick summary of it. Uh, there's a paradox that bothers us. It rubs us the wrong way. And that's the paradox is something, it goes something like this. It's when a bad person suffers, it makes sense. 
when a good person is rewarded, that makes sense, right? Because why? God rewards good people and punishes bad people or something to that effect, right? That makes sense. Uh, but wh- what happens when you have somebody like Job who uh, is, um, is described as the most righteous man in all of the East? So this is how the narrator of the book of Job uh, um, describes him, but this is also how God describes him. He describes him as a blameless and upright man. Um, actually, two times in the first few chapters. So if there was a, ever a person that didn't deserve to be punished or to suffer, it would have been Job. And essentially, it is this uh, complete innocence and blamelessness that bothers us because his suffering is so incomprehensible to him and to us as we read the book. I, um, so I was kind of preparing and thinking about Job uh, and meditating on like kind of what, what, uh, what direction I want to take it um, and kind of thinking about this topic of suffering and what does it look like to have hope in suffering. Um, I asked my wife, as to see if she had any ideas, like, hey, what do you think about suffering? Okay, and, and she says, uh, well, be married to Stanley John. <laughs> yeah, y'all pray for her, forgot to open her eyes, but she was joking, she was joking, I, I think. But, you know, I clarify the questions, like, what does it mean to, what do you think about Job and his suffering, you know, the book of Job? And I think she described uh, a portrayal of the book that I think a lot of us share, and that goes something like, it feels like God is gambling with the lives of his people. It feels cruel. It feels, it doesn't make sense. And we trust that God is good and he's sovereign, so maybe he's going to work it all out, but it feels very uncomfortable as we read the book. I feel like the Job takes all of our preconceived notions of how God works, who God is, and just chucks it out the window, right? Uh, it kind of punches, on, punches us in the gut as we think about how it portrays God and how God interacts with his people, specifically Job, in this, in this story. And so God's conversation in the early chapters with the accuser gives us the impression that God is, doesn't have a rhyme or reason of why he does things. He seems to be haphazard, random. He's um, kind of just gambling with the lives of his people, like I mentioned. Um, as I was kind of thinking about that uh, imagery, I think about this, uh, the game, um, or yeah, I think it's a game that, um, that goes something like pin the, don- pin the tail on the donkey. Have y'all, are you familiar with this? No? Nobody's seen this? Oh, okay. I was getting worried here for a second. But basically, game, game goes like uh, you, get, you have a tail that you have to pin on a donkey, a picture of a donkey that's on, uh, on, on the wall. And so the person that has to do it is blindfolded, spun around a couple of times, and they are l- sent to do this task. Um, and obviously, as you know, the tail doesn't end up where the tail should be. It's, you know, on the head or on the, ta- on the, on the leg or on the back, and not where it's supposed to be, or s- miles apart from where the donkey is. And sometimes it feels like this is how God uh, picks the people he, who he wants to test. Essentially, uh, somebody brings up Job, and God's like, yeah, sure, why not? Why not Job? Uh, but I think some of these paradoxes or challenges is what makes Job uh, difficult for us to read, and so we prefer to just read the first few story or read a summary and go to the Psalms because Psalms that makes more sense, you know. Uh, but you know, part of going through the Bible like we are is we we landed on Job and we have to deal with Job, and so this is what we're going to do this morning. So hopefully, this morning, as you wrestle with it a little bit, uh, we can see uh, what God has to say to us from this book. 
And so let's kind of begin our study this morning by looking at who Job is. And so given that it's more of a, a kind of an overview of the book, I'm not going to describe every aspect of it, but I just want to mention a couple of pieces of Job, uh, um, of, of, of the description that Job is, uh, that the narrative gives us about Job. So uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, or excuse me, we can actually read from chapter 1 on. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job is described, I won't read the whole thing, but Job is described as somebody who's wealthy, who's blameless and upright. He uh, is somebody who's described as fearing God. He's blessed with a large family and is wealthy. He's well known, like you see in verse 3, he says, um, yeah, in verse 3, the latter half of verse 3 said that this man, describing Job, was the greatest of all the people of the East. So it's not an average person. Okay? This, he had severe or significant street cred, you know, spiritually and um, in, in a worldly sense. He had all the money in the world, and he, had, he was righteous as righteous could be. But in chapter 1, verses 13, we read about what happens to his family. And so I just want to, again, just to get you a flavor of what's happening in the story, I want to read verses 13 and on in chapter 1. It says, Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. He's talking about Job's children. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell up from heaven, and it burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were drinking, eating and drinking wine, in their older brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So here we see um, Job's family being wiped out, all of his wealth being stolen and raided on, uh, and a few verses down, if you look at chapter 2 and verses 7 through 8, we see that Job himself is struck with sickness. So verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And so disaster strikes his family and disaster strikes Job and everything that he owns. And in, the, in, in, in sandwiching between these two accounts of what happens to Job, there's a scene that uh, the narrator gives us uh, about, a, uh, about something that happens in heaven. And I want us to look at that real quick as we kind of make sense of what Job is trying to teach us. So in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to pre present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Actually, that can be phrased as just, it's framed as a question, but I think you can just um, 
the right way to frame it is to really God saying to Satan, I notice you have, uh, you have been observing my servant Job, but just to keep that in mind as we look at this, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So this is what God thinks about Job, that he's blameless and upright. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job, Job, gosh, Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So there's a lot to unpack here, uh, but for the sake of more, uh, this, for our time together, I want to just point to a few things uh, as we look at this uh, passage. So remember, Job is uh, classified, and you may not have known this, but Job is classified as wisdom literature. And essentially, it falls with the, uh, in the same genre as books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And so essentially, the book was written to the children of Israel to impart wisdom of what it means to handle suffering. So it's important to keep in mind as you look at this book, uh, but along with, the, with it being a, um, part of the wisdom literature, it's also written in poetry form. So there's a lot of dramatic effect that's built into it. And so as you read the scene, I don't think we should, what we should not take away from it is this is how God conducts his everyday business. But rather the author of Job is trying to give us a kind of a snapshot of what's happening as, uh, or describing the scene as a backdrop for helping us understand what the rest of Job is going to teach us. So we see the character of God here. We see the sons of God essentially are, are the angelic beings um, in God's presence and in God's kingdom and God's court. Uh, and this is the third character that's described as Satan in your English Bibles. Well, um, you also may have, some of you may have a, po- a, a superscript next to Satan and it may be pointing to a, a footnote in your Bible which says something like uh, accuser or adversary. And so <clears throat> those are also words that can be used to describe this character that, that is referred to as Satan. But one of the things that is missing in your English Bibles is the a def- definite article that comes before the word Satan. So it, it should actually read, the Lord said to the Satan, and that's important because, um, as you all may know, uh, when there's a definite article before uh, a, a name like Satan, it's actually referring to a title, kind of like the king, the prince, the master, the servant. And that's important for us to recognize here because this, sa- this Satan is actually not referring to a, a, a being, but rather it's referring to a title. In this case, it's somebody who is accusing. And actually, if you look at the uh, look, at the, look at the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, you'll notice that the word Satan is actually used for, sometimes used for angel that is sent by God. Uh, if you remember the story of Balaam, that's that story where the guy, is go- the prophet is going to curse the children of Israel and this donkey starts talking. Yeah, that story. The a- God sends an angel to block a Balaam and that angel is referred to as Satan because he is opposing Balaam, even though he's there to do God's will. So it's important to recognize this, the word Satan is actually a title and not the same being that you, we would see in the New Testament where in case we remember where Satan uh, tempts Jesus in the wilderness. It's not the same being, but rather it's a title, somebody who's opposed to somebody, someone else. In this case, somebody who's opposed to God is who is being referred to as the accuser. So 
and I think it's helpful to keep in mind because sometimes I think we can overanalyze what's happening in this scene. But what is this character? Why is this character even in the picture? Well, he brings up a lot of questions for us uh, to consider. One, uh, when God presents Job as upright and blameless uh, and as a shiny example of what it means to follow God, the accuser raises the possibility that actually, God, it's probably only because you are always blessing these people. These people that follow you, they don't love you. They are only following you. They're only religious. They're only living a pious life because they want your blessings. Maybe they're really selfish. And in verse 9, uh, and just to re-read, re-read that in, of chapter 1, Satan says, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So the accuser is pointing out that Job and all men only worship God because of, of the rewards that God, God gives the righteous. But given enough suffering and enough persecution, all men will stop serving God. They will curse God and not serve Him. So men, are re- men and, or people are really following God or only worshiping God because they're afraid that God will punish them. And it's worthwhile to think about, and I'm not going to get into this, but worthwhile to think if Job actually shared the same view uh, about God. But th- that's the accus- accusation that the accuser brings up, and it's really against God, not against Job. The accuser is actually accusing of God of of blessing these people like Job. So, as we read this dramatic representation of the scene, I think it's crucial, like I mentioned, to realize that the Satan is not a sinister figure that's hell-bent on persecuting Job. God is not a cruel gambler giving in to Satan's desires because that's the wrong story, and that is not what the narrator is trying to tell us. But that is oftentimes one of the uh, more commonly uh, common theme that's imported into the book uh, because of think Hollywood and how we think about the world. But, um, so I, I saw this quote that I think was helpful from John Walton. He, he's a seminary professor and he wrote a book called The Book of Job. Uh, but he, he describes it this way. He says, the scene in heaven is not trying to explain why Job or any of us suffer. Job is never told about that scene, nor would he have derived any comfort from it. As I have taught Job to students over the years, the question frequently arises, what sort of God is this who uses his faithful ones as pawns and bets with the devil? I would suggest that this question is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of the prologue, which is the introduction to Job. The scene in heaven, like the speeches of Job's friends, is part of the literary design of a thought experiment to generate discussion about how God runs the cosmos. The prologue is not trying to teach us how Job got into such a difficult situation or what angelic beings do or do not have access to to God's presence. The message of the book is offered at the end, in the speeches of God, not in the the opening scenario, which only sets up the thought experiment. The book is focusing on how God works in the world, not teaching us about how things work in heaven. I just want to repeat that. The book is focused on how God works in the world, not teaching us about how things work in heaven. So keeping this in mind, and keeping that as the backdrop, let's explore some of the other themes that, are sh- that show up in Job, some of the other characters that show up in Job. One of the first ones uh, that I want to focus on is his friends that show up. I don't have these verses up there, but if you read uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. 
Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And this kind of brings me to our first point this morning, uh, and that is that God does not fit neatly into our theological boxes. God does not fit neatly in our theological boxes. So when suffering comes, one of our first responses oftentimes is to try and figure out why this has happened. This is what Job's friends try to do. They sit quietly for seven days, but then Job starts talking or venting to them and they start responding. Uh, And so in chapter four, all the way through chapter 37, which is the bulk of the book, it's really um, the conversations that happen between Job and his friends. And this, this section is full of dense Hebrew poetry, and so it's not the most fun read, but it kind of contains these conversations that are happening between Job and his friends. And it paints actually a picture for us as readers to see how Job's friends try to figure out what's happened to Job. They want to explain why Job is suffering. Isn't that oftentimes what we want to do? The, the friends are not quite able to figure out why he's suffering. It's a mystery. They know he's upright. They know he's blameless. So this mystery is making them uncomfortable and they jump to conclusions about its source. And that's what the section in, the, in, in, uh, in chapters um, four all the way through 37 capture. So, but so for some uh, 24 hour chapters, Job is responding to his friends, cranking out arguments. They have debates with him, he's responding, they go back and forth, all three friends, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the first of these three friends is Eliphaz. Eliphaz is acknowledged, uh, is, is one of the f- first friends that are listed here. And if you look at uh, verses four, uh, chapter four, verses three to eight, and I want to read all of it, but in the first section of chapter four, Eliphaz says, Job, I know you're blameless. You've helped a lot of people. You've been a source of strength to them. But then he turns and puts the blame of Job's suffering squarely on Job himself. In verses seven and eight, he says, remember, he says, or think now, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were you, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And so Job here, uh, Job's friend here says, Upright and right people, they don't sow trouble. You are so, you're reaping a lot of trouble. So there mu- th- that, that must mean that you're not upright. And so after Eliphaz goes, Bildad and Zophar, the other friends, kind of jump in, bring their own accusation. And according to their understanding of God, probably much like ours, God sends disaster only to the wicked. God rewards the uh, upright and sends a disaster to the wicked. So for them, Job's suffering was a sign that Job was wicked and not actually upright. If you were to actually try and summarize their theology or read the commentaries, their theology is described as retributive justice. Retributive justice. And so it basically goes, you sin, God punishes you. You sin, God punishes you. You uh, do good things, God rewards you. Simple, straightforward. 
But that's where the story turns, because the story sets up a question for us as readers to evaluate if the friends are actually right. Is this how God functions? Now, we do see some examples of retributive justice in the Bible, right? Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Like they sin, God, sends, uh, God punishes them when their sin reaches a level. We see Pharaoh and his chariots being destroyed when they don't allow uh, the children of Israel to leave. So it's not uh, without uh, precedent in the Bible, but the question is, is this how God always functions? And that, I think, is the central question, I think, that we have to wrestle with. And the answer, I think, through the story of Job is that God does not always function on the principle of retributive justice. His ways are much higher, more complex than we can fathom. He runs the world not according to our wisdom, but according to his wisdom. And that is a mistake that the friends of Job make. They had a formula for God. They had a box, some theology, and they were trying to fit God in that box. And in the process of trying to fit God, they harassed Job by accusing him of sins he did not commit. They accused him of hiding sin. They accused him of uh, lying to them. And Job, in the middle of all of his other suffering, has to deal with this from his friends. And the friends, probably with good intentions, are eager to figure out what is the formula to get God to stop punishing Job. Job is suffering. God must be punishing him. How do we get this to stop? So it's just back and forth and back and forth. Like I mentioned, it's quite tiring. Reading through the middle parts of Job is kind of a, a slog. As we, I find myself thinking, why can't these guys just be quiet? Like, why, do, why is such a large portion of this book dedicated to this? But I think as you come to, as you kind of read through it, you find out the emptiness in all of the arguments, and you find out that there is no resolution to any of their questions as they kind of walk through this, because Job continues to maintain his innocence. I was like, nope, I didn't do that. Nope, I didn't do that. No, I don't have sin in my tent. No, I'm not hiding anything. But Job and his friends, Job's friends, again, don't want to hear any of that, because in their box, that's not how God works. So we probably have a box like that too, believe it or not. And in this box, we have everything that we believe about God and how God works. Some of it we have um, inherited from our parents, our families, life experiences. It's all been jumbled up in there, some from our Bible studies, some reading our own Bibles. And some of what we know is right, because it comes from the Bible. But probably most of what we know is probably incomplete or flat out wrong. And that is an uncomfortable thought. Because of our simple minds and our need to control, we like neat answers. We want simple formulas. But it turns out that there are no formulas to figure God out, because he does not fit in our theological boxes. He works on his own timing, based on his own reasons, in his own wisdom. I think it's fruitful for us as believers to uh, kind of evaluate our do we fit into, are we like Job's friends? I think it would be foolish to imagine that we're not. I mean, there's, there's a reason why there's all these chapters dedicated to these friends. I think well-intentioned Christians oftentimes uh, give pious-sounding answers to suffering, right? And you've probably been on the receiving end or probably on the giving end like I know I have been, right? Well-intentioned friends or family trying to comfort you in the middle of tragedy, Right, and just like Job's friends, they probably say something like, it's all for the best, it's part of God's plan, 
God never sends people any more adversity that they can handle, or if you had more faith, this would not have happened. I've heard all of that in different settings. I think it's, if I could suggest something, I think it would be more truthful and far more helpful for our loved ones who are suffering just to be present with them in the middle of their suffering, just serve them in the middle of their suffering, because oftentimes our platitudes are not only wrong, they turn out to be hurtful and oftentimes discouraging. So the book of Job, like I said, demands that we look and see if we find ourselves in the faces of Job's friends, because we too presumably know right from wrong. We have a sense of how God works, but turns out we don't know all the ways in which God works, and in all the times and places that God works. So I think the lesson that we take away or we should walk away is that we must be humble and not be quick to dish out reasons for someone's suffering. And if you're honest, really, it probably doesn't have to be friends who accuse us. Chances are you accuse yourself. Most of us are ready to uh, accuse ourselves readily. And any of us who has experienced tragedy or unexpected loss has probably wondered, what have I done to deserve this? Why me? Why my family? And it's natural to wonder that. But I, and I, I do think it's uh, worthwhile to examine our lives before God. It's just part of being a believer. I don't think we should be quick to blame God or ourselves for the tragedies we experience. Because oftentimes that's just part of living in a fallen world. We don't have simple answers. But what we do have is we, can, we have a God that we can trust in the middle of the suffering. And this is what we see Job doing. Because God's wisdom, goodness, and justice often transcend our assumptions and our sense of fairness, and they go beyond our limitations like our reasoning. And this is what I think Job does here, and brings me to my next point, which is Job finds hope in God's wisdom. Job finds hope in God's wisdom. So as you can imagine, Job, after experiencing all this loss and these tragedies, and listening to his friends accuse him, Right, they just continue to get hostile and accusatory as, as the chapters go by. He's a train wreck. He's lost his family, he's lost his friends, and he has to listen to his friends. He feels abandoned by God and his friends. And after all this back and forth with his friends, he stops responding to them. He's like, I'm done with y'all. And he just decides, I'm just going to go talk to God directly. And so he takes his case up directly with God. Because at this point, Job recognizes something. Now we're in chapter uh, 28, if you're keeping track, uh, kind of going through the, the book, um, Job recognizes that actually God is his only hope. He understands or he's starting to pick up that God's wisdom is beyond his understanding. And for him to move forward, he needs to trust God's wisdom because man's wisdom in all of its splendor, and he describes the splendor somewhat in chapter 20, 28, but he says that falls severely short of God's infinite wisdom. And we see this transformation in chapter 28, like I mentioned. So if we read or look at Job 28, let's just look at a few verses from chapter 28. It's the speech that Job gives describing God's wisdom. He spends the first half describing man's wisdom, but he spends the verse 20 and below describing God's wisdom. And it, I think if you're looking for the key to in understanding Job's wisdom, like I'm or sorry, Job, the book of Job, uh, I think chapter 28 is a critical piece. Like I mentioned, it is part of the wisdom literature. And so here we see in kind of the center of the book, the chapter on God's wisdom. 
And so you actually sense a shift in jo- the tone as Job starts to realize that God's wisdom is where he will find hope. So let's look at verse 20 uh, in chapter 28 and says, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold the fear of the Lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. And you've probably seen that verse on a plaque but this is where it comes from. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, to turn away from evil is understanding. So Job is turning and putting his hope in God's wisdom for one simple reason. As he describes here, he recognizes that God's created all this. And so probably God knows how it functions. So it's better to lean on his wisdom and trust his understanding instead of leaning on our own, on own, excuse me, our own understanding. Now, I think it's important to recognize here that uh, in saying that we need to trust God in the middle of our suffering, we are not uh, being called, we're not called to be passive. And I think some, that's another mistake I think we uh, probably do when we think about what it means to be a faithful believer in the middle of suffering. Oftentimes, you've probably heard this too, in Christian circles, we, there's this taboo about asking questions in the middle of suffering, right? Oftentimes, it's assumed that if you're asking questions of God or about God, it's offensive to God. God doesn't like that or indicates a lack of faith or it indicates lack of, it's a, it indicates unbelief. And it oftentimes manifests itself in very harmful ways where we ask people to suppress those questions or to just ignore it or just we give cliche answers. The story of Job should serve as a comfort for all of the questions we have about God. Because if you find yourself in that boat, I just want you to recognize that God himself is not surprised at the, or upset at the questions we have. Because asking questions of God and about God is a very much a human way of processing pain and suffering. An interesting uh, caveat, if you look at actually count through the, how many questions there are in the book of Job, there's about 330 questions. Yeah, somebody's counted. Um, and so over 42 chapters, 330 30 questions. In comparison, if you look at the book of Psalms, right, the longest book in terms of chapters, 150 chapters, uh, there's only about 160 questions. So you can tell, like, questions were part of how Job processed. And most, more interestingly, if you look at how many questions Job himself is asking, it's about 122 questions that Job himself asks in the book. And God asks about half of it. He asks about 61 questions. So Job asks twice as many questions of God than God asks himself, asks Job. So now, it is not to say just because we ask the questions, we're going to get the answers we want or get it in the timing that we want. That is not part of the book of Job. But asking questions is not a sign of unbelief because sometimes asking questions um, we, aren't, we, f- we figure out where we are in relation to God. It kind of gives us an opportunity to examine the theology that we, we live with. Um, and so speaking of questions, and speaking of God asking questions, 
in, uh, in the next section uh, of Job, God himself shows up and be like, actually, I also have some questions for you, Job. And so we, uh, in, in, ch- in chapter 38 through 41, we start to see God asking his questions. So we didn't look at this for the sake of time, but um, there's a couple of things that I want us to, uh, that I think I want to give you guys as background as before we look at what God asks Job. So Job actually accuses God of two things. One, he says, God, you don't care enough about all the details to pay attention. You're way up there. You don't care enough to pay attention. You don't care enough to pay attention to me and my suffering. That was one of the first accusations. The second accusation that he levels against God is that that God was not just. Again, retributive principle in his mind says, I'm upright, I should not be suffering. But I am suffering. They're either God doesn't work on retributive principle or God is not just. And so these are the two accusations that he raises. And so God shows up and decides to answer Job by asking him a few questions, which brings us to the point, the next point, which is God knows what he is doing. God knows what he is doing. I thought about a creative way to describe this, but I was like, I think this is it. This is God knows what he's doing. This is it. So in chapter 38 uh, through 41, after suffering through all of Job's questions, his friend's speeches, God shows up in a whirlwind and starts asking Job these few questions. And God in this section is demonstrating to Job his wisdom. Now, I wish I had more time to kind of unpack this, but the clock is running at the back. And so I have to skim for the sake of time, but I just want to point out a few things. First, God asks Job, hey, Job, and this is in chapters 38 through 41, if you want to keep track of it, Uh, but here's a sampling of what God's asking Job. It's like, hey, I laid the foundations. Were you there for that? I bought the stars out one by one. Were you, did you see, did you see that? What about the rain? Do you know where the rain comes from? What about the storehouses of snow? What about the constellations? I bought them out and put them in their place. Did you know? Were you there when I did that? Did you direct the clouds? Do you know how they function? What about lightning? Do you know anything about that? Well, you get the point. God's asking these questions in very specific detail to Job, and Job is like, well, I know what rain is. I know what snow is. I know, you know, um, what the stars are, but I actually don't know how all of those function. I mean, think about Job and his, where, his state of mind as he's describing this. And so, Job is, uh, God is really asking um, us to consider the things that we take for granted. We don't worry about the sun rising. We don't worry about the st- stars or the moon showing up. We just expect that they would. We don't concern ourselves or worry about these things. God takes care of all that. God's paying attention to that. So, if they're going through the cosmos and the heavens, then... Um, God asked Job about some questions about on earth. He says, uh, you know about the lions? Do you know how they get their prey? Who feeds them? About the eagle soaring? Do you know anything about that? The mountain goats giving birth, wild donkeys, and so like the list is endless. God just goes on and on asking Job these questions, and Job has no answers for God. It turns out that Job knows far less than he thought he did. Job is probably familiar with these animals and have seen them, but he doesn't know how they're sustained. And God kind of ends this section by asking Job uh, Job one more question. That is, hey, Job, uh, since you think I'm not being just, why don't you take my place for one day? Why don't you come sit on this throne and run the universe for a day? Just one day. And God offers Job the opportunity to run the world in his 
view of justice. Says, you have a view of justice, why don't you run the world as such for one day? Here in this, uh, in this one day, Job can run the world and be the arbiter of justice like he wants to. Job could humble the prideful and deal with the wicked like Job pleases. And you have to read this passage because Job is not keen on any of these uh, offers. And neither would I, to be honest. Well, in that case, God says, you should probably leave the task of justice to me. And that's how God ends uh, that section. And so the gist of God's response to Job's accusations is of God not paying attention to his plight or God not being just. Job is just overwhelmed by all of these details that God has access to. He keeps the cosmos going. He keeps the universe going. He keeps the earth going. He keeps our life going. And so he probably has the best ability to administer justice as God sees fit. So God's world is magnificent, but it is not safe or perfect, Job recognizes. Suffering still exists, but Job is not capable of assessing if his suffering is just or not. Should he be suffering? He's, he doesn't have the perspective or the platform that God has to make that decision. Turns out it is a lofty goal for us too. We do not have God's platform or perspective to decide if we, what we experience in life is just or not. We must leave that up with God and trust His wisdom and His goodness. He cares for us and for the world around us, and therefore we can put our hope and our trust in Him. So what does Job do with all of this as we kind of wrap up this morning? So Job's uh, response is captured in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Um, but basically my point here is suffering sanctifies us and matures our faith. Um, for the sake of time, I'll just skip, uh, just read verse 5 here. Um, but in verse 5, and I'm going to read from the message translation. I've, I've put it up here since um, I think it's a helpful way of looking at it. It says, Job says, I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. So how are we to look at suffering? How, did Job, how does Job look at suffering after all of this uh, back and forth with his friends and with God? Well, if you've lived long enough to have a cold, you probably recognize that suffering is part and parcel of our lives. It's not something we can avoid. It's part of living in a fallen world. But the Bible's view of suffering is not that it is pointless, like we often tend to think, but rather it does have a sanctifying effect on our lives as believers. Now, I don't think God sends suffering to sanctify us, but rather God uses the suffering that we experience. He redeems the suffering that we experience to bring out our faith, to refine our faith. It he uses the suffering that we experience to refine our view of him. And this is what we see Job doing. Job says, I used, to, I mean, Job was described as an upright man, but he says, he himself admits, I was living on rumors of you. I was living on secondhand information about you, who you were, how you ran the world. But Job's suffering clarifies for him his view of God and deepens his relationship with God. And we're all probably in the same boat we probably all have head knowledge that God is loving and he's faithful and that he's wise, but it's only in the crucible of suffering that it's made real for us. In the crucible of suffering, we shed all of these childish thoughts we have about God and his, 
ways. It sheds all the pride in our life, it refines our faith, and it brings out a faith and a life that is closer and more real for us. We intuitively know this in our other relationships, whether it's your marriage or your friendships. When we experience difficulties and go through it together, we come out on the other side more stronger and more closer. Similarly, our relationship with God not only grows uh, in, during trials, but it grows stronger during trials. But oftentimes our fear is that the opposite will happen. What if I lose my faith? What if I am not able to uh, hang on? That's oftentimes our fear, but I think the story of Job is trying to tell us that when we experience suffering, our faith is often made strong. We move from living by rumors of God to knowing God personally based on firsthand experiences. And this is actually what James, the disciple of, uh, disciple of Jesus and the brother of Jesus, actually teaches us in his epistle. Um, in James chapter, uh, J- chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, I have, um, I'm just going to read from the Phillips translation here. I don't think it's on the screen, but I just want to read it so you can hear it. It says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. When endurance or patience has been given full play in the details of day-to-day existence, it will make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James here is describing what it means to live in suffering, what it means to be persecuted, and guess who he, who he uses as an example for us to follow? Can you guess? Job, yeah. In chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, this is what he says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, we have this morning, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, I feel like I, I um, came to this quite later in my preparation, but so I was thinking about how James is describing Job, uh, the story of Job and his suffering. He, dis- he says at the end of reading Job, you should come out thinking that God is compassionate and merciful. I mean, that's not how I came out of reading Job till I kind of dug into it, but I think it tells us how far oftentimes we are uh, in understanding what the scriptures are teaching us. But this is how James, the brother of Jesus, thinks Job's suffering um, led to, what it led to. And so, again, James uses Job as our encouragement to face our trials. And we see this transformation in Job in the last chapter of Job, or chapter 42, where he uh, says the answers to his questions, he may have gotten it, but they're pointless. And the real answer to the suffering was the realization that the God that he serves is wise, faithful, and loving. He didn't get an answer to the why question, but he understood or understands that God, he just needs to trust God and put his hope in God. And he can put this hope because God is in control and he can rest easy. He does not have to be worried again when trials and suffering comes. Like Job, we too can recognize that no depth of suffering can take us out of God's hands and care. God is in control. No matter what comes, good or bad, we can trust God's wisdom. We may not get all the answers to our questions, 
But we know that God runs the universe and we are in his hands. So as the band comes up this morning and as I kind of wrap up, I just want to take one more point as we kind of wrap up the story of Job. And that is that Job actually points us to a better Job, and that is Jesus. Jesus is a better Job. Because underneath the story of Job, if you pay attention to it, we see the story of Jesus. As the book concludes in chapter 42, uh, God rebukes uh, Job's friends, and that's how we know they were incorrect in their thinking. But he, because he says, you spoke improperly. He holds them accountable for trying to paint God on their own terms. He says that they have not spoken about God rightly, just like Job had. So God then instructs his friends, Job's friends, to make sacrifices and go to Job and ask Job to pray for you. And so Job, the righteous one who suffered, intercedes for his friends and prays for them, and God accepts his intercession. God accepts his Job's prayer. And Job becomes a mediator for his friends, and God spares them. And once you connect the dots, we see that this actually represents Jesus, because both Job and Jesus are righteous and blameless. Both Job and Jesus suffer for no fault of their own. But Job and Jesus were restored by God, and both Job and Jesus intercede for their friends. But Christ is a better Job because he intercedes not just for his friends, but for his enemies, you and me. And Jesus is a better Job because unlike Job, who lived a full life, and the last verse says Job died an uh, old man, and Jesus lives forever. He died on the cross, but he conquered death and suffering on the cross. And Christ is at the right hand, God's right hand, praying for us eternally. The accuser is in his presence accusing us. And this is what Satan has done from the beginning of time. But Christ is our great redeemer and our great mediator. He reconciles us to God. And he saves us, not just his friends, but us who were his enemies. So we place our trust in Jesus and are secure in him, then we don't have to worry about the accusations of the accuser. We don't have to worry about when we're in the midst of suffering because we are hidden in Christ. The Holy Spirit preserves us. In good times and times of suffering, our refuge is in Christ. That's whom our eyes are fixed on. So instead of focusing on our tenacity or ability to hold on, we can trust and keep our eyes fixed on the one that's holding us. We can find our hope in Jesus because he loves us. Whether we find ourselves in the depths of suffering, in our questions, our doubts, our fears, and our future. We don't have to worry about whether we will hold on because Christ is the one holding us. Let's pray. Jesus, as we spend time thinking about Job and his suffering, the lessons that you have, from the book of Job. Pray that you continue to give us grace to meditate on this. As hard and difficult of a book as it is, we know that it was written so that you can show us that we can hope in you. That we may not have answers to all the suffering we have experienced, but we know that we can trust in your wisdom and in your timing. We can fall in your hands and rest in your 
grace and your peace. I pray for all of the folks here that are listening that have not experienced you and what it means to be in you. I pray that you would give each of them grace. You would speak to their hearts in this moment. Pray for those that are have probably felt distance away from you because of suffering in their own life or because of a past suffering. Pray that you bring healing into the, the lives. You bring reconciliation and relationships that have been broken. I pray that you continue to give them strength and grace to suffer well. They may be able to do so by just keeping their eyes fixed on you because we know and trust that you will never let go of us. We know that you are king and you rule the universe. You are a loving and kind father that cares for his children. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.